Welcome back to TanakhCast. This is episode 79. We'll begin with a brief summation of chapters 12 through 15 in 1 Kings and follow with a consideration of appendages, aggressiveness, and aggrandizement. In the previous episode of TanakhCast, we saw Shlomo plummet from the heights and his kingdom doomed to division. In this episode, we watch the six-car pileup happen in real time. Shlomo has died, his son Rechavam is the heir apparent, but if you recall, in the Egyptian wings waits Yeravam ben Nevat. And one of the more unfortunate things about this smoldering dumpster fire is the fact that the main protagonists of this story have names that are so damn similar. Anyhow, Rechavam, the son of Shlomo, comes to Shechem, an historic tribal rallying point for his coronation. He's surely aware of the impending challenge to his throne, so it's no surprise as he prepares for the ceremony that Yeravam shows up fresh from Egypt. And Yeravam has some thoughts he'd like to share with the ascendant king, some words about labor reform. Quote, Your father made our yoke heavy, and you now lighten the hard labor of your father and his heavy yoke that he put upon us that we may serve you. Rechavam asks for three days to consider the proposal and seeks counsel. First from the elder statesmen, the holdovers from his father's court, who propose prudence. Give the people a little today, they say, and the people will be yours for always. But Rechavam also has a crew of his own, and they have other ideas. They are concerned with Rechavam's rep and counsel him to respond in a rather unnecessarily aggressive manner. Quote, my little finger is thicker than my father's loins, and now my father burdened you with a heavy yoke, and I will add to your yoke. My father scourged you with whips, and I will scourge you with scorpions. Well, what would you do? Go with the snappy comeback, of course, which he does, and that goes over with the people like a Led Zeppelin. They respond in a typically predictable fashion, quote, We have no share in David, nor an estate in the son of Yishai. To your tents, O Israel. See to your house, O David. At this point, there is no revolt, no open hostilities, but the people are roiling, primed and ready. So when Rechavam dispatches his chief overseer Adoram, it's on. And it's not clear whether Rechavam is utterly oblivious to the political situation or was giving the people basically the finger. But when Adoram presents himself as the king's representative to carry out the king's command, he's basically a dead man. The mob sets upon him and kills him, and Rechavam flees for his life. And Rechavam has a decision to make at this critical moment. Does he muster his troops and suppress the revolt, or not? After all, one could say that the unfolding of events is preordained, its prophecy fulfilled. And soon one does say that in the form of Shmaya, a man of God, who tells Rechavam to stand down. All is as it's supposed to be. So Yeravam establishes himself as king in Shechem, in the hill country of Ephraim, his home tribe. But as the new king of Israel, he is confronted almost immediately by a challenge to his legitimacy, a religious one. The people will want to near offer and make pilgrimage to the temple in Jerusalem, under the sway of Rechavam. So Yeravam, on advice from council, decides to erect a new site. And since he's erecting one, why not erect two? 
I mean, who would object to a shorter commute? So he has two golden calves made and sets one up in Beit El, a little bit north of Jerusalem, and the other in Dan in the far north. And to further emphasize the start-uppy nature of his venture, he selects priests not from the establishment families of the Levites and launches both sites. It, it's a soft launch at first, which provides some really useful data and metrics, before the hard launch on the 15th day of the 8th month in Beit El, which becomes a festival for the Israelites, a festival our authors regard as pure idolatry. And speaking of pure idolatry, a man from Yehuda appears, a nameless man of God, full of rebuke for Yeravam. Chapter 13 begins with his colorful prophecy of a king to come to the house of Yehuda named Yoshia, who will destroy the idolaters, smash the altars, you know, the usual fire and brimstone stuff. So when Yeravam reaches out his hand to yell, seize him, you know, in that classic villain move, his hand, quote, withered, and he could not pull it back. And then the altar falls apart. Yeravam quickly changes tack, entreating the man of God to come to his house for a meal. Don't do it! The man of God says, quote, Should you give me half your house, I would not come with you, and I would not eat bread, and I would not drink water in this place. Damn! And apparently God told the man of God not to eat or drink anything until he returned to the land of Yehuda. So when an old prophet living in Beit El hears about the incident, he invites the man back to his place to eat and drink. But the man of God refuses, repeating the commandment to refrain from food and drink. The prophet tells the man of God that he is a prophet and that a divine messenger told him that the ban on food and water was called off. Why the lie? It's not really clear, but the man of God agrees, and as they are sitting at the prophet's table, having eaten and drunk, God speaks to the man of God through the prophet and tells him that his carcass will not be buried with his father. Yikes. And as the man of God heads home, he's attacked by a lion who doesn't eat the carcass, but instead leaves it on the side of the road, with the donkey upon which the man was riding standing by, and the lion, rather than taking off or eating anything, just kind of sits there. And when the word gets back to the prophet about his, this odd tableau, he runs out, retrieves the body, and buries him, and tells his sons that when he dies, he wants to be buried with the man of God, whose prophecy about Israel's destruction, he is convinced, will come true. But in the meantime, Israel's sinfulness continues. Chapter 14 continues in the kingdom of Israel with Aviyah, Yeravam's son, falling ill. Yeravam sends his wife to seek out the help of Achiah the Shilonite, the prophet who foretold his rise to power. Perhaps an offering of bread, cakes, and honey might convince the prophet to intercede on his behalf with God. She must go in disguise, as it will require her to go to Shiloh in the kingdom of Yehuda. but as she soon discovers, the disguise is useless. Not only is Achiah blind, but God tells him that Yeravam's wife is coming to see him and that he should tell her that because of his wantonness and sinning, quote, I shall cut off from Yeravam every pisser against the wall, bondsman and freeborn in Israel, and I will burn out the house of Yeravam as one burns dung till it's gone. Damn! So Yeravam's wife rushes back to the palace just in time for her son to die. So Nadav, the next in line, ascends upon the death of Yeravam. From this point on, the text jump cuts from north to south, from Israel to Yehuda, and back again. And apparently the indulgence in idolatry is infectious, because in the closing years of Rechavam's reign, Yehuda too becomes a hotbed of harlotry and licentiousness. And for this, Yehuda is punished. Shishak, king of Egypt, raids and plunders Jerusalem, and, well... 
I'll let Dr. Jones and Dr. Brody explain. However, an Egyptian pharaoh Shishan. yes, invaded the city of Jerusalem around about 980 BC, and he may have taken the ark back to the city of Tanis and hidden it in a secret chamber called the Well of Souls. Secret chamber. However, about a year after the pharaoh had returned to Egypt, the city of Tanis was consumed by the desert in a sandstorm which lasted a whole year, wiped clean by the wrath of God. And in line with the Deuteronomistic flavor of the accounts of chapters 13 and 14, there was also conflict, war between Israel and Yehuda because of the sinning and idolatry punishment for straying from the righteous path. Eventually, Asa becomes king of Yehuda in the 20th year of Yeravam's reign in the north, and he rids Yehuda of the male cult harlots. The text makes a really big point about those male cult harlots and all the idols, and he has marginal success in his struggle against Israel because of his fealty to God. Meanwhile, in Israel, the reigning king Nadav is assassinated by Basha, who seizes the throne and murders all the remaining descendants of Yeravam, which is a fulfillment of prophecy and the vision of the Deuteronomist, where those that sin are punished and the righteous are rewarded. Thus endeth the summation, and beginneth the consideration. It's been a while since I brought up the Game of Thrones, and it's quite appropriate considering the goings-on in this episode. Here's a little bon mot from one of my favorite characters in the show, Lord Peter Baelish. Do you know what I learned losing that duel? I learned that I'll never win. Not that way. That's their game. Their rules. I'm not going to fight them. I'm going to fuck them. That's what I know. That's what I am. And only by admitting what we are can we get what we want. And what do you want? Oh, everything, my dear. Everything there is. Though called Lord, Peter Baelish hails from a small and poor stretch of land in Westeros called the Fingers. He was raised as a ward of Lord Hoster Tully, a mischievous and sly child who grew up alongside Caitlin and Lisa Tully. Caitlin was eventually betrothed to Brandon Stark, Ned Stark's older brother, much to Peter's consternation, and he challenged Brandon to a duel for Caitlin's hand and lost. Through the patronage of the Tullys, Baelish acquires a number of important positions, culminating in his appointment as Master of Coin, or Treasurer of the Seven Kingdoms. Lord Peter Baelish is also known as Littlefinger. Why Littlefinger? In Game of Thrones Book 1, A Song of Ice and Fire, it is, it is said, quote, Caitlin's mouth grew tight. Littlefinger, she murmured. His face swam up before her, a boy's face, though he was a boy no longer. His father had died several years before, so he was Lord Baelish now, yet still they called him Littlefinger. Her brother Edmure had given him that name long ago at River Run. His family's modest holdings were on the smallest of the fingers, and Peter had been slight and short for his age. And even though this is the true origin of Lord Peter Baelish's nickname, nonetheless, folks can't help but think that it alludes to some other appendage. These days, it's hard to avoid being obsessed with fingers and hands and other appendages. One only has to think back to February and March of 2016. He's always calling me Little Marco. And I'll admit, the guy, he's taller than me, he's like 6'2", which is why I don't understand why his hands are the size of someone who's 5'2". Have you seen his hands? They're like this. And you know what they say about men with small hands? 
You can't trust them. He said I had small hands. Actually, I'm 6'3", not 6'2", but he said I had small hands. They're not small, are they? I never heard, I never heard that one before. I've always had people say, Donald, you have the most beautiful hands. Right? He hit my hands. Nobody has ever hit my hands. I've never heard of this one. Look at those hands. Are they small hands? <laughs> and he referred to my hands. If they're small, something else must be small. I guarantee you there's no problem. I guarantee. But where did all this finger talk come from? To answer this question, one must jump into the Wayback Machine and set the dials back to 1986. Spy Magazine. I began reading Spy Magazine religiously the following year in about 1987. In a way, it, along with Monty Python's Flying Circus, informed my sense of humor and irreverence. So thank you, Kurt Anderson and Graydon Carter, for making me the man that I am today. Spy Magazine targeted the American media, the entertainment industry, and especially New York High Society, of which Donald and Ivana Trump were gold card, self-aggrandizing, egomaniacal members. Spy was jokey and satiric, but also thoroughly researched, and they had a number of recurring shticks. One was the column entitled Private Lives of Public Enemies, which eventually just became Private Lives, which fictionalized unflattering situations for public personalities. Separated at Birth, which juxtaposed two celebrity photos, and then there were the pejorative epithets. For example, they referred to Abe Rosenthal of the New York Times as Abe, I'm writing as bad as I can, Rosenthal. And more to the point of our present moment in history, they refer to Donald Trump as, quote, the short-fingered vulgarian. I'll quote from a letter from the April 1988 issue to the editors of Spy about this particular epithet. Dear editors, the single sharpest aspect I look forward to each month is your hilariously on-target descriptions of Donald Trump. In past issues, he's been referred to as a Queens-born casino operator, and more recently as a short-fingered vulgarian. As a concerned New Yorker and avid spy reader, please allow me to humbly suggest these additional Trump epithets. Koch-bashing book huckster, rink-building show-off, media-lusting publicity brat, shifty-eyed miniseries cue card reader, shameless gopher-tooth real estate glutton, cocksure multi-chinned hornblower, spotlight-seeking name-dropper, ad-lib rehearsing talk show guest, suspiciously red-faced stock crash avoider. Again, I commend you on your unselfish civic-minded efforts to expose Trump for what he truly is. David Vogler, Park Slope, New York. I'll put a link to that issue of Spy Magazine entitled The Nice Issue on the thenextjew.com. They also tried ugly cuff, link buff, well-fed condo hustler, joyless punk millionaire, employer of white people, tiresome punk infidel, and the wife-dumping Atlantic City strongman. Apparently, though, of all the things folks have said about Trump, this one, this, this short-fingered vulgarian epithet has stuck. As Graydon Carter has said recently in an interview to NPR... He blames me for this more than Kurt. He'll send me pictures, tear sheets or magazines, and, and he did it as recently as April with a gold sharpie. He'll circle his fingers and in his handwriting say, see, not so short. And this April, when he sent me one, I, I should have held on to the thing, but I sent it right back by messenger with a note stapled at the top saying, actually quite short. And I know it just gives him absolute fits. 
And of course, leave it to Trump to take the insult and insinuate sex into it, which is precisely the point of the ad hominem jab. Trump's reaction then and continued reaction now, even 30 years later, really speaks to the fact that he's truly vulgar. I mean, only a vulgar person could interpret that in such a fashion. Oh, and then discuss the size of your penis on national television in the middle of a candidate's debate. Well, yeah, but then again, so did Rechavam. Here we are in First Kings, this pivotal moment in the history of Israel where David's grandson is about to ascend to the throne in Shechem, and when faced with the people's request slash demand for a lessening of the workload, a serious policy question that prompted the king apparent to consult with advisors for three days, one can almost hear Trump utter Rechavam's reply to the people, quote, my little finger is thicker than my father's loins, or to put it into Trump speak, if you thought my father Shlomo Schlong was big, mine is huge. And I'm gonna fuck you with it. I was gonna try to do a Trump impersonation, but that would require me watching clips and learning, and I really didn't want to. So, but you got the point. And I could go into greater detail about the parallels between Rechavam and Trump and how both grew up in luxury, how both don't listen to sage advice, how both speak crudely, and how their shenanigans resulted in division. But I won't because, well, I would say he's incompetent, but I don't want to do that because that's not nice. <laughs> if you like what you heard today, spread the word about Tanakhcast. Send a friend an email to say, hey, you should check out Tanakhcast. Or like Tanakhcast at the show pages on Facebook or Google Plus. Or write a brief review at the iTunes store, Stitcher Smart Radio, or SoundCloud. It's small thing, really, but it will help other people find Tanakhcast. I thank you in advance for that, and encourage you to join us again in two weeks for... Episode 80, when we continue the first book of Kings, chapter 16 through 19.